Hey, welcome to the Football Diary podcast. Thank you for joining us. Another week, another sacking in the Premier League as Nathan Jones is dismissed from his position at Southampton. Um, we'll talk about that in a moment in, in this week's pod. But we're going to shine some light and show a bit of love to a couple of teams in the top end of the Premier League we don't talk about as much, really. And that is Fulham, first of all. Uh, and their win against Nottingham Forest looked super impressive, as they have done lately. And also Brentford as well, who got a really impressive point against leaders Arsenal with some contentious VAR decisions, which we'll also touch on as well. But I've got Dave with me today. And uh, Dave, how, how did you think of the um, the Fulham performance, first of all? They beat Forest 2-0. They both came up from the Championship together, but on this performance, you kind of wouldn't know, would you? And I think for the last few weeks, last few months even, the level of consistency from Fulham has been just super impressive, hasn't it, really? Yeah, definitely. And obviously, in, in the manner of the performance that... They were probably a little bit unfortunate to only be be winning one nil at a time, and but if you've got a, we speak about teams that have recruited really smartly over you know the last few weeks we mentioned, we've probably not touched upon Fulham and how you know how successful they have been in a lot of the the players that they've brought in. It just seems like they've everybody's contributed. And an interesting stat that I saw earlier is that twelve of their players. Scored at least one goal this season. No other team has had more scorers than Fulham, which I, which actually wow. blew my mind just to see that and know that. And but obviously, you look at some of the players. William coming back into the Premier League. Who who saw that coming? Well, I doubted it, but he's been brilliant. He hasn't. Let's speak about his goal. Yeah, Ridiculous. well, he could have had another screamer as well, couldn't he? Hit the bar with one, but his actual goal, the technique, switch feet, got it right in the corner as well. I mean, that's vintage, William, really, isn't it? Let alone the age he's at. It was a flashback to his Chelsea days, wasn't it? How many times did he score those sort of goals for Chelsea? And yeah. that it couldn't have possibly been any more in the top corner, couldn't it? That that uh, that finish. <laughs> um, but you know, I think there's a lot of players you can talk about and. I think one thing that for me that stands out as well, especially last time Fulham were in the Premier League, is their defence was, you know, it kind of at fault for a lot of their their losses. They just couldn't control games. But you look at kind of the spine of their team now. Obviously, you've got Mitrovic in there, and obviously Paulinho, for Pereira, who both have actually proved to be a really good midfield duo. Um, you just look at them now, they look formidable and they look like a real solid Premier League team. And that that's yeah. probably something that probably su- has surprised a lot of people this year, I find. Yeah, I think so. And like you say, the, the signings they've made have, have not been panic buys, they've not been um, gambles, they've been players that actually suit the way Marco Silva likes to play. And they came up from the Championship playing good football. And I think when they started signing players in volume, I think we all kind of said, you know, it's full on Mark Two. They'll be yo-yoing back down to the Championship again. But no, they, they, the way they play is suited really well to the Premier League, and they've been a really difficult team to play against. And another shout out deserved is I think Burned Leno as well. I think as a an acquisition to sign what was formerly Arsenal's number one goalkeeper for a promoted team just shows you how attractive the Premier League is, first of all, but also the kind of project that Fulham was selling. I think Marco Silva is one of those managers that's got a bad rap from you know the way he's he's been perceived from previous jobs, especially the way he left Everton as well. I think he's rebuilding his reputation as a, an enterprising young manager now quite considerably, isn't he? Oh, definitely. I think one thing that stood out for me as well, how consistently I've been, and a stat that highlights this, is they've only lost one of 15 Premier League games, apparently, this season against teams outside the top five. Wow, which is, that's amazing. 
that's crazy, really. Um, and then you actually look at the games that obviously the, when they have faced some of the top sips, they've actually put in you know really solid performance, been very competitive, been hard to beat. Yeah. So you've got to give them a lot of credit. The, the manager, especially, you know, we knew Marco Silva was was a, a talented manager, had a lot of promise. Probably didn't quite have the opportunity to do that in his previous, obviously, um, positions at previous in previous clubs. And I'm just glad that he's been given this opportunity, and they've done brilliantly so so far this season. And hopefully, you know, they can continue because I really like Fulham as a club, and they're not really you don't really want those sort of clubs to lag kind of be yo-yoing you know back and forth from, from the championship to the premier league um so yeah brilliant to be a, brilliant yeah i mean beating nottingham forest i mean that was the fixture really that could have been a relegation six pointer as well couldn't it at the start of the season but i mean even forest have taken us by surprise the promoted teams are looking stronger um obviously forest have had a much bigger challenge with with signing players and the volume of players they've had to sign to kind of be up to premier league level but um, I think even even so, Fulham have had to sign the right calibre of players and learn from lessons from the past. You know, they've signed some absolute duds before, but I, I just think the players they've signed this time around, and you said acquisition of players has been the key really for them, alongside a manager that's got the right ideas and, and sets them up the right way. But I mean, what's the limit for Fulham now? Do do they look up the table or down the table that the, the team's chasing them? I mean, how high can they go? It's an interesting one, isn't it? Because you look at the sort of teams that are around that sort of uh, position in the table. With how much praise have we given Brighton over the you know the last few months and Brentford? That yeah. if arguably Fulham are doing better than both of those teams, and they've kind of gone under the radar. I feel a little bit. Um, so, I mean, if they could finish top half. It depend really does depend on some of the other teams as well. Obviously, you look at the likes of Chelsea and Liverpool. We're still kind of yeah. waiting to see whether they're going to make a late surge and they're actually kind of going to recover from this big slump that they're having. Um, but there's no reason why they obviously can't kind of aim for that sort of you know between six and eighth, six and tenth is more than up for grabs, and that would be you know a huge success at the start of the season. You can imagine they would have been looking. For, you know, to, to, for safety, and you can't see them dropping below where they are now, um, just with the way they're playing and how consistent they have been. Um, so it's yeah, you, you can't imagine that they'll um, drop off massively. No, I think the the chasing pack, as you say, their consistency has not been great. And I think that's the exciting thing about the Premier League and that sort of mid-table upwards at the minute. It's really competitive, partly because of inconsistency of others. But also because those mid-table teams have strengthened well enough. Like you say, Brighton, Fulham, they're both up there. Villa are surging up the table now with the right coach at the head. So, yeah, it's really exciting to see. And um, moves moves me nicely onto the next team we want to talk about, really. And that's Brentford, who are in and around there, slightly above them, I think, in the table still. And they grabbed the point against Arsenal as well, league leaders Arsenal, mm-hmm. uh, to make the title race that a little bit more interesting again. Uh, but Brentford were really good for their point, weren't they? And again, so many players in that team are, are performing well above the level we expect them to. But I think the secret for me for Brentford is not really that much of a secret. It's Thomas Frank, isn't it? He's such a great coach. And just to shine an example of, of how you get players coached well enough to perform well above their standard, really. 100%. And I can't speak highly enough of what Brentford have done while they've been in the Premier League. You look at... The money they've spent in the last 10 years, they've only spent 170 million on that team. 
in 10 years, really. Yeah, 170 that's million. That's, that's the least of any Premier League team. Um, I think the second bottom is Forest, who've spent 100 more million than that, so 270 million. So that's, wow. you know, it's dropping the ocean, really, isn't it? Um, mm. for, if you have a look at what they've achieved and the talent that they've been able to promote through the team. We forget about, obviously, players that teams have actually taken from them as well. Obviously, you know, the likes of Ollie Watkins and players like that have have obviously come from them. People forget about these things as well. And I, just the way they play, it's just you've got to be in awe of it and the way they go about their game. A point as well. I mean, you look at how it was obviously how it was achieved and obviously there's a lot of controversy over the, the goal isn't there um, yeah. but they thoroughly deserved a point for me Brentford and they had more than enough, enough opportunities I think that's what will probably frustrate them is that they could have arguably gone on and won this game um, yeah. you looked at the way Arvin Tony played he played absolutely brilliantly it was just a couple of occasions where it just he was miss, missing that final touch where there was mm. Um, yeah, I did have a couple of chances where you'd probably expect him to score on another day, but um, the way that they played and an interesting thing for me as well is how dominant they are um, in terms of like their physicality and a, a ridiculous stat from this game. William Saliba had ten aerial challenges and didn't win one. That's Tony, though, isn't it? That's just—he's such a handful. <laughs> And he had a nightmare game in, in general, Saliba did. And it's down to Tony's energy, his his vision. He's, he finds space, doesn't he? He actually plays really well in, in terms of setting up others in the game as well. He creates space for others. But mainly his, mainly his physicality is just unplayable. I think the way he gets in and amongst the, the right parts of the area just to get in amongst the goals as well is, is difficult to stop. And Arsenal found that, didn't they, really? Especially for his goal. Oh, yeah. And uh, I think Brentford has scored more set-piece goals this season than any other team. 14. Wow. Which okay. kind of highlights, strength, you know, how dominant they are in the air. Um, so, coming up against any teams that have struggles, then they're obviously going to thrive in, in those sort of areas. And, uh, yeah, let's be honest. The goal, it should have been offside. Um, yeah. But... You've got to give Brentford a lot of credit. The, the, the resilience that they showed in this game, like defensively, I thought Ethan Pinnock had a brilliant game. He made an absolutely outstanding challenge against Nketiah, I think, where you, you just it looked like it was going to be a goal. He managed just to make a, a last-ditch um, challenge just to kind of snuff the ball away from him. And If they can keep a, a lot of those players, that, that they can they can go far and they can build upon what is already you know a really good foundation and you know Thomas Franks. What what a job he's been doing, and you've, you've got to say he's, it's going to be interesting to see if some teams, you know, maybe even a top six team does go for him in the next couple of years because what yeah. he's doing there is is frankly fantastic. No pun intended there. No, <laughs> frankly fantastic. <laughs> Do you know what I think? No, I don't think he'd turn and look at any other team outside the top six now if he was ever approached. And I think he's got things so good at Brentford in terms of. They're supporting and facilitating his style of play. It's his team, isn't it? And you said Ethan Pinnock's a shining example. Like he's he's come up through the divisions, hasn't he? But stuck through this this top flight transition with Brentford. So many others have done that as well. I think they only added of significance was it Ben Mee in in the summer. That's the only sort of kind of transfer they've had that's really been noteworthy. 
And, you know, he's not world-class by any means, but he's made the most solid outfit again. And so many players have played well above their level, really. Obviously, Ivan Tony is, is the standout player. Mm. But, I mean, I think Josh De Silva, again, he's proving people wrong. Um, he's had a horrible injury, but he was rejected, I think, by Arsenal, was it, when he was a youth player? Yeah. Um, so that, that's some kind of uh, revenge there. Um Norgard as well, I thought, played really well. So, yeah, Brentford have got a lot of outstanding players, but they're coached so well that you can't see them going anywhere else and shining in the same way, mm. can you, really? I think what uh, one thing that Franks has going for him as well is they've not got he's not got a great deal of expectation on him, I don't feel, especially with kind of the investment that they've put in and how well he's done in you know the last couple of years with that particular team. If you look at Graham Potter, for example, similar sort of situation at Brighton, you know, recruited really smartly. He's gone into a completely different environment at Chelsea and all of a sudden the pressure's on and the expectation is that much higher. I just feel as though this club does really suit Thomas Franks. And who knows, obviously, we'll get probably get to a point in his career where, where he might want to kind of, you know, push on and test himself in different waters. But for now, he's doing such a great job. You You, you couldn't see him at any other club. No, I think that's a good comparison with Graham Potter as well. It's kind of a cautionary tale, isn't it, of making that step up? Because, I mean, to go from a team that's challenging for sixth and seventh in the Premier League to a top four contender is such a massive gap in expectation and resources as well. And I think he has to handle limited resources at Brentford. So if he was to give be given like un, unfathomable riches at another club, like Potter has with Chelsea and being handed all these world-class players, It'd be interesting to see how he'd handle that. But I also don't think he'd last five minutes in a job as well because that kind of coach needs time to embed a system. And Brentford have had so much time to embed a system. In fact, when they were chasing promotion, they failed a few times, didn't they, at the final mm. hurdle at playoffs? But they stuck with it. They stuck with the system, the philosophy. And that's to their credit because it's paid off once they got promoted. And as soon as they did get promoted, I mean, I doubted they'd stay in the league. But after that first season in the Premier League of, of consolidation, I can't see them leaving the league now unless something dramatic happens, like Frank leaving, I guess. Um, I can't see them being in danger of relegation because they're so well run, so well organised. And I mean, what value do you put on some of their players now? Like if they were to sell any one of their assets. I mean, Ivan Tony, for example, I can see him at a club like Man United. I can see him at most Premier League clubs, to be fair. He's such an incredible player. But what value do you put on him? And how I'm surprised to stay there. I'm really surprised that someone like Chelsea didn't go for him, to be honest. It just yeah. seems like the final piece for, for Chelsea. I mean, we say final piece with how they're playing. It sounds absolutely ridiculous, doesn't it? But some yeah. of the players that they have, a player like him and that team would be outstanding just the way he you know, he links play and brings other players into you know situations where they're able to sort of build in attacking transitions. I think he's outstanding. And I, I just hope he gets more of an opportunity um, f- for his country as well. I'd, I'd really like to see him yeah. give, be given a chance. Well, he's earned it. I think he's formed this season. But then there's a few English strikers that are in the same position, aren't there, really, that are playing really well. But yeah, he's probably, I think, the standout English striker, obviously, with Kane included in that bracket as well. I think the way he's taking his chances, he's creating goals out of nothing sometimes. Um and bullying his way into positions. Yeah, he's an absolute joy to watch. But let's talk about the the goal, the equaliser for, for Brentford for a moment. Um, there's a few stages in the goal that you can consider might be offside. I think that's the con- kind of contentious issue. So when the ball's first played in, there's a there's a kind of a, a, a claim possibly 
that Pinnock was pulling back um, the um, no Pinnock was being pulled back or something like that, or he was pulling back somebody, and that might have influenced it being offside. Mm. I think the referees have looked at it like from outside the game and said, "Well, there was no no chance of him ever getting near the ball, so that doesn't count." So then you move on to the next phase of play, which is obviously the ball coming into Tony, and they spent so long apparently checking the first stage of play or the first two stages of play and whether that was going to be um, ruled out or not for offside. That apparently the line is that they might have rushed the final stage, the actual, the goal itself. Now, for me, that blows my mind because when you think about using VAR, you think about using it from the goal backwards. I don't know about you, but you think you check the goal first to see if that was legitimate and then look at the other phases of play afterwards. But they didn't do that. Not only that, but they didn't draw any lines in to check see if he was actually offside as well. So what the hell is going on there? It's, it's something that's happened a few times, hasn't it, over the last year? I feel like I've got a bit of deja vu um, from this and probably from a United game where it seems as though the VAR system is too focused on, obviously, whether there's a foul going on and then he's actually forgotten to then go and check for the offside, which seems like it's the case. And it's happened so many times, actually, over the last year where they've been looking for something and there's been something yeah. else that's been going on in the area. It doesn't even get analysed. And you look at it after the game and you're thinking, well, why hasn't that been looked at? Why has that been not, not being checked? And it just seems to be, it, it must be a rush or obviously there's just too much focus on checking for it. Most of the time, it seems to be that they're too focused on checking for the marginal of yes. offsides, like a millimetre offside. And it turns out that there's been a foul in the box that they should have been looking at <laughs> before that. But yeah, again, it's just it's error after error, isn't it? Over this, yeah. there was one in the Brighton game again. Um, I don't want to keep talking about it because it's just infuriating, isn't it? And even more so when you're on the receiving end, as obviously a, as a fan, and it's yeah, it's one of those things that, frankly, is not going to be the last time. We, we talk about this and no. you can you can feel aggrieved as a fan one thing I don't like about it is and it seems to happen a lot Mikel Arteta comes out after the game and speaks about that at the end of the day Arsenal weren't good enough on the day to beat Brentford no um, for me they didn't deserve to win the game I thought a, I thought a draw was was a fair result on the basis of play um, we, as we know in football you can sometimes get what you deserve or the other games you can go on and win a game and and not deserve it at all so for me it's one of those things I think Arsenal really should have obviously done better in this game they sh- mm. they're going they're on a little bit of a hitting a bit of a bad patch of form at the moment not playing you know not playing bad but not playing as well as they were but I just feel as though as the front runners in this league they should be going on and doing better in this game they should be winning the game um, yeah you know, on, they shouldn't be moaning about a decision that's not gone their way when they're, they're more than capable of winning this game um, in in multiple kind of situations in the game with the amount of attacking flair and plays that they've got. They, they, they yeah. should be beating teams like Brentford. You say teams like Brentford, but I think they deserve to get something out of the game, like you said. Um, I just don't think they're set up to play Brentford very well. I think tactically it's a lesson for Mikel Arteta because... You know that Brentford are going to be difficult to play. You know that they are going to bully your defence, but I don't think you've set up to kind of counteract that in any way. So. No, but look at the teams that Brentford have beat this season. Yeah. Beat Man United, 4-0, was it? 4-0. Yeah. 
Yeah. You know, they've be- they've beat a lot of the top six, and it's it's not really kind of a surprise, I suppose, as such for Arsenal to drop points against them, um, particularly after obviously the last couple of games before that. But yeah, you know, they're a difficult team to play against Brentford. They're this, you know, they're they're so hard to play against. It's you've. I, I don't think Arsenal can feel too aggrieved. I, I can, yeah, I can understand in the way that the equaliser yeah. was equaliser was scored, but Brentford deserved at least a point. Hundred percent. I think they're probably more aggrieved because they see it as more pressure in the title race now. Um, I mean, they are on something of a mini blip, aren't they? They've, they've dropped points in the last few games now, so all eyes on Wednesday's clash against Man City, really, and see how that works out. City seem to be against all odds, kind of staying focused and. and still producing form so it promises to be a, an exciting encounter really doesn't it what what's your take on that quickly who who do you think is going to come out on top uh, I can see City taking it you know I mean they seem to be thriving on being the, the pantomime villain and I don't think many people in the Premier League as neutrals want to see City win it now especially with everything going on but I think they will no I mean coincidentally let's just say I think um, Miles obviously not being on this week. Two games, two losses in a row. You just can't handle it, can he? Um, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, this game. You looked at Man City. They didn't. Villa in the first half were diabolical in the way that they played. Um, Man City just were able to capitalise on the mistakes that, that Villa made. And yeah. they, let's be honest, in the second half, they probably didn't really need to get out of third gear. Um, they made subs quite early on, didn't they? They took Holland off, who I'm not yeah. sure if he picked up a, a little nick or um, that'll be interesting to see what happens with that. Um, I think it's because... a precaution because of Wednesday. I think that that's the reason for most of the changes. And uh, I think they realise now how important that game is because, I mean, if they win, the only way this whole title race is going to change is if City win. Because if they don't beat Arsenal, Arsenal remain in pole position. So, it's literally win or bust for City in some ways, isn't it? So pressure's on both teams, but I think probably on Arsenal more, don't you think? Yeah, I mean, it's all in it's in Arsenal's hands, isn't it, at the end of the day? Yeah. Um, they've obviously got these two games. They've not um, experienced this kind of pressure, though, and we said this before, didn't we? I think if they lose this game, we'll, we'll see what they're made of. Um, yeah. We'll see what metal they have, and that's it's going to be interesting, isn't it, if... It'll be interesting for me how City approach this game because they've made some strange, like Pep's made some strange decisions over the last week. We look at the lineup that he fielded against Tottenham was mm. very odd in the way that obviously yeah. he didn't start De Bruyne. Um, Haaland's blown hot and cold against some of the big teams who've you know been a lot more kind of adept defensively. We've seen him struggle against obviously Spurs. He didn't even have was it didn't have a touch in, in the penalty area. Yeah, for the first time, I think, in about five, three, four years or something like that, since he was in, um, started in the Bundesliga, yeah. So, kept him I mean, pretty quiet. He did, he did look pretty good against um, Arsenal uh, in the FA Cup, but he was facing Rob Holding, who was having an absolute nightmare <laughs> against him. And I'm pretty sure Rob Holding's not going to be starting. Um, no. So, it, I mean, it will be interesting to see what Pep does, um, because, you know, he's got an embarrassing, you know, amount of riches in that in that squad um but yeah i'm excited for this one yeah i think at most neutrals are thinking anyone but city now aren't they for the title um because again it feels like a soulless win if they do win it and um did you see the banner in in the stadium as well kind of supporting the oh. 
the the lawyer that's defending them how how odd is that that's just an, a weird state of affairs for their fans to be following isn't it and it's a real face palm moment isn't it massive it's just, like, just hearing it just makes me cringe so bad um yeah it's do you, know what? I was, as well. do you know what before this came out and especially after that pet conference i was a little bit sort of I don't really want Arsenal to win the league, but if there's a team that's going to win the league, I'd much rather Arsenal win it now than Man City yeah. win it. Definitely. I think we echoed the sentiment of many fans, to be fair, that aren't Man City mm. fans. Uh, anyway, moving on to someone other than City. Um, let's talk about Southampton and Nathan Jones because um, he got the sack this week. Um, I don't think it was a surprise. I think a few of his press conferences lately after matches have been re- really strange, haven't they? Really almost too honest, I think. And that's kind of his undoing to an extent because by being so honest in press conferences and and almost saying you're not being the person you're 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 usually being as a manager and mm. changing the way you're managing because it's a Premier League team of Premier League players gives him a position of weakness, makes him look yes a bit human, but also like he's out of control with the way things are. So no surprise that he's he's gone. Quite sad to see the way he's gone though because it was at home they lost to Wolves, didn't they, to a ten man Wolves team two one at home and the home fans were brutal towards him and I think on a human level I do feel for managers when they're under that kind of scrutiny and criticism but I think for me Southampton are the ones to blame they shouldn't have employed him in the first place but they paid three and a half million to get him out of his contract and he just isn't Premier League material and for all his bravado and all of his ego I think he should look back at this and go yeah it probably wasn't the right time for me either don't you think? It was a huge gamble for Southampton to take him on with you look obviously how we did at Stoke, we had a bit of a nightmare there. Obviously yeah. went to Luton. It's a different kettle of fish going to the Premier League. You can't, you know, it's you need to have a little bit more about you. You need it. Obviously, definitely helps have a bit of Premier League experience or you know a Premier Division, some sort of Premier Division experience. Coming straight from the Championship is it's always going to be difficult for any manager, um, but. It's been kind of going on for a few weeks. You've just been waiting to see when they're going to kind of press the red button, Um, and you know it's come. It's finally come to an end, and I'm sure Southampton fans now are kind of just looking at who's going to come in, and that's that's one for me. Like we were talking about Everton, weren't we, a couple of weeks ago, and saying who do they bring in, and we're now you're looking at Leeds as well. It's like they're all swapping managers, isn't it? All fighting for the same kind of caliber. A few weeks ago, everyone was, you know, laughing at the thoughts of uh, Everton taking Sean Dyche. Yeah. When now, do you not think Southampton and Leeds would love to have Sean Dyche? Oh yeah, absolutely. I think you're looking for somebody who can steady a really rocky ship at the minute, and Southampton is is sinking fast. They've still got a talented team. I don't think it's a championship team by any measure. Um, Hassan Hootel, I think, could have made it happen for them if they'd have stuck with him. But the mood at the club was starting to change. But this kind of appointment of Nathan Jones just took it to another level, really. Quite damning when he... Was it one win and it was against Everton? Yeah, 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 that's true, yeah. (laughs) In the league? Not a good look, is it? But, I mean, before we talk about the um, contenders for the Southampton job next, um, because the the lineup's not exactly going to fill fans with confidence, is it? But um, why did it go wrong for Nathan Jones, Dave? What did he do that kind of made him lose nine games out of 14 because that's an awful record. And it doesn't help when a manager comes in and changes systems and so many times to kind of 
find a way of how he wants to play. But then you look at kind of what, what he did at Luton. He had a, a set sort of system. Um, he came into Southampton and tried to change it so many times. And he came out then and admitted, this is not how I want my team to play. And this is not how my team normally plays. He, he really kind of just contradicted himself so many times. Almost oh. kind of threw himself under the bus in a way. Because did, yeah. I think he was almost scared in a way to kind of you know, criticises players because it's, you know, it's imperative that your your players are behind you, especially as a a very new manager, new manager to to the division and at that level, you need your players behind him. And it came out, didn't it, a few weeks ago, there was a murmur saying, you know, the Southampton players are doubting the manager, not entirely happy with the situation. Then alarm bells are ringing, you're thinking... Mm. It's only a matter of time, really. Um, There was just too many things that... It was definitely a lack of experience. Uh, A lot of the things he came out and said, and you listen to post-match interviews, and, okay, there are only interviews, but it kind of... It shows you really, probably paints a picture, doesn't it, of what is kind of going on. And 100%. he, He didn't appear to have any sort of confidence in the situation in that they were going to turn it around. You listen to what he said about, obviously, last weekend against Wolves. Uh, you know, they played really well for 60 minutes. And and obviously, he said he'd rather play against 11 men than 10, which That's I thought bizarre. was really strange as well. Does he um, do himself any favours? He keeps talking too much. And do you think, yeah, think that stuff, but don't vocalise it in public? Yeah, it's it's a strange one, and I'm I'm just sure that Southampton fans are kind of relieved, and I won't say relieved that he's he's not there anymore, but I'm I'm sure they're so worried now with the situation they're in. Yeah, um, I mean that brings us on to the next thing, which is who takes over Southampton now for their third manager of the season. Like, who's going to want to first of all? But the favourites are Jesse Marsh. I think they've stopped taking bets on him taking the job because he's such a, a big favourite now to, to jump straight back into Premier League management. But behind that, you've got Steven Gerrard, Dean Smith. You know, these have both got awful records in the Premier League in recent times, you know. So as a Southampton fan, you're not going to look at that lineup and go, yeah, they're going to dig us out of trouble. There's still a period of transition going to need to be happening to adapt to their way of managing, whatever that might be. But they've lost... Someone like Hassan Hootlou, he's also been talked about a comeback as well. I don't know what good that's going to do, whether he's going to get any new manager bounce as the old manager coming back in, you know. So it's a strange one, isn't it? How do you see it playing out? I mean, you mentioned, didn't you, that it seems like, well, Jesse March has been, is the favourite now, which is... Pretty much, yeah. One thing I will say about Jesse March is that at Leeds, and for... The most part in their games, they actually did play really well in spells in games. It's just that their downfall was their defense. That they they were just hit um, in certain moments where you just looked at it and you thought, yeah, that's Leeds. But the thing Some is, the, the managers that, that we all the managers we've mentioned just then are so one-dimensional in the way they play. And I think you look at a team like Wolves who have got Julian Lopetegui now as their their coach, and mm-hmm. he's just so tactically flexible that. You can see him making shifts mid-game. And obviously, Eric Ten Hag has done that at a high level at Manchester United, where you can see tweaks to the the game in the middle of play. You can see mistakes happening and going, yeah, that's not working. Let's change it. Let's try something different. Let's put left uh, Luke Shaw at left centre-back, you know. And he knows his players, he knows his team, and he's not afraid to try things like that. But 
Steven Gerrard showed no tactical flexibility whatsoever. Jesse Marsh hasn't as well. And I know his plan A is always quite entertaining, um, but his record is terrible, at, at, you know, at, at not just at Leeds, but prior to that. So I've not got much confidence in the next step for Southampton. I think they're going down. It saddens me to see that, though. Like, yeah. I, I really like, I like, I love Southampton as a club. I just think, you know, they seem to have graced the Premier League for so many years. It'd be strange to imagine the division without them. Um, and yeah, I think what's important to note as well is that that's such a young team. It is, yeah. They, they almost like it's almost like they need an old head to sort of give them that guidance and kind of shift them in the right direction. Which the, all those managers that you just mentioned haven't got a great great deal of experience of doing well in the league. With you know, apart from arguably Ralph Asenhutel, who you know did a, did a good job at, at, at the Saints for a number of years. So, it, like you say, it would be very bizarre for him to come back in. Um, with how it ended it would but I think it seems to make more sense than starting afresh this deep into the season for me there's not a right answer no well you could just stick with the assistant or or, you know or an option that kind of jumps out at you you think that's what they need to do it's 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 kind been of they were wrong and go back to Hasenhutl. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, maybe. Maybe. I mean, it takes some, some guts to do that as a board. And I think Hasenhutl would probably be in a big position of power if he was to do that as the manager. Whatever decision they make, it's, it's, if there's not a, there's not a right answer at the minute. And there's not a, like, like I say, it's, there's not for me a, a, an option that you can take and be like, yeah, that's, that's going to fix it. That's definitely 100% going to go some way to giving us some sort of direction. Um, but you mentioned Jesse March, Gerard, Dean Smith, no. Ralph Hassenhutel is probably the name that you would take out of those names. That those is the best coach out yeah. of a lot. Yeah, he is. 100%. He's an actual coach and the others aren't. They're kind of cheerleaders and that's what it feels like, you know. But yeah, it's worrying times for Southampton. But before we finish the pod, Dave... I uh, just want to touch on um, something of a bright spot for Chelsea fans really to look at because Shao Felix played in their, their recent game against West Ham. It was one all, Another frustrating game for Chelsea, but Felix himself had a really good game and I think he got sent off obviously in his first game and he's been suspended for a while, but he played pretty well then as well. He looks like he could resurrect his career to an extent, doesn't he? He's not long, got, not got long at Chelsea, but he was out of the 11 players on the pitch for them, by far the most creative, wasn't he? Yeah, 100%. Uh, how how much of a joy is he to watch when he's in that sort of mood? And I think it's easy to forget how good of a player he can be when, with yeah. kind of what we've seen um, him do at Atletico over the years. It's kind of been in dribs and drabs and they've been in moments. And I think a lot of, a lot of that is down to the style of play that uh, Simeone kind of employs there. But how he's performed in these first couple of games at Chelsea, he's done really well. And it seems like everything kind of revolves around him. It's He yeah. creates, you know, these certain moments when he picks the ball or it seems like the team comes alive and they, they react to him, they respond to him. Um, they're just not finishing chances, are they? They're having, you know, especially in this game, I thought this is probably the, the best game that they've had since Graham Potter's come in. Um, and... I, I just feel as though 
they are a couple of players away from it. But what he's doing right now is, you know, it's, it's great to see. And it's why we watch the Premier League and why we want these sort of players to play in the Premier League, isn't it? Definitely, yeah. I think he, when I've seen him on the ball, um, for Atletico, I've not seen him have enough time to show what he can do. And obviously the system isn't geared for him there to, to, to take the game by the scruff of the neck. But I think in this game for Chelsea... Felt like he was given pretty much a free role. Like he'd just been told by Graham Potter to go wherever you want to go. And you could tell, like, the freedom he played with was, like you say, just a joy to watch. And I think it's the kind of thing you pay as a fan to go in and see someone like Jean Felix playing football because it's so natural to him. His technique is so, I don't know, just ingrained within him as a player that you've seen flashes of what made him brilliant in the first place. And I just hope for his sake that he doesn't go down the path of someone like James Rodriguez, who is another player that's kind of a luxury midfielder who had so much skill. And I remember him going to Everton and it's all going, wow, he knows how to control a ball. He can do such amazing things with it. But fundamentally, is is not sustained the levels we thought he would. Xavi Felix is still young enough, I think, to turn that tide, isn't he? He looks like he's enjoying his football as well. He does. You look at how he's, you know, he's playing in these games and he's trying to kind of grab the game by the scruff of the neck and, you know... Um, cause and effect on play and he he's never been obviously a um a, a renowned goal scorer as such you know he creates opportunities very creative player but the way he took his goal i thought was you know really good he had another one ruled out didn't he off offside as well i think well taken as well um yeah. really well taken he just he's oozing confidence at the minute um and it just seems like everything that's going to come good from Chelsea seems like he's involved with the bulk of it. Yeah, I think Chelsea look like they're waiting to kind of click now because they've got so many good players. Obviously, with the money they've spent, you'd expect that. But yeah, if they had somebody just, like an Ivan Tony up front, they'd be very dangerous, wouldn't they? Yeah, it just seems to me that it's not clicking for them because there's so many players that are injured at certain moments or there's players that are coming back and then mm. and the players are obviously Reese James, Chilwell, who was on the bench for this one. I thought Cucurella was average again. Yeah. Um Chilwell needs to come back into the team for me. Reese James is the big one, isn't he? Because he's yeah. just pivotal to the how they play. Anyway, that's all we've got time for on, on this week's pod. Um, again, thanks a lot for joining us. There's a lot to talk about next time, so make sure you tune in for, for next week's pod as well as we talk about the big title game between Man City and Arsenal. That's really exciting. Can't wait for that. And obviously, the Merseyside derby will have happened by then as well, so plenty to look forward to. And uh, yeah, look forward to seeing you there. Thanks for joining me, Dave. No, thank you. See you later.